what the dynamic um, of voting was and, um, and what your expectations are now. So we'll turn it over to you. Hello, uh, not so good in English, but I will try. Uh, the most problem that we have on these elections was that it was not, not uh, open elections for us. It was very difficult to, uh, to have a good campaign. We have uh, not the same um, same situation with uh, opposition candidates and the candidates of the uh, in Russia and Russia. For example, if you want to uh, have to create a meeting with um, with the people, you'd like to have a if you need to um, create a, a meeting with uh, people, you have to um, have to take a paper from the administration. Uh, but you can't uh, can't take this paper without um, uh, if you are opposition. It's my main problem. For example, the next problem was uh, um, signature for the election on um, you know, difficult. Uh, maybe you have a translator in from Russian to English. Is it all right? Yeah, do, somebody can translate for you. Yeah, тебе помогу, Андрей. Главная проблема была, что выборы не были открытыми для оппозиции. The main problem was the burdens that were created for the opposition. Для примера, что изначально разные политические партии находились в разных в разных условиях. Для примера, партия Парнас в Петербурге мы за все время в некоторых районах не могли согласовать ни одного публичного мероприятия. Uh, different political parties, they had different starting positions. For example, Parnas political party cannot uh, uh, get uh, permissions for any of the uh, public events or meetings with constituents. В то время как представители Единой России, партии власти, фактически не просто получали это согласование, но и где-то даже нарушали те строгие законы, которые были предоставлены, которые стоят у нас сейчас в предварении избирательной кампании. And for uh, United Russia candidates, they uh, not just was getting uh, any permissions that uh, they needed. Sometimes they even violated their own rules and uh, were meeting with uh, people without any permissions and in government uh, facilities. Uh, если мы говорим про размещение политической рекламы, если мы говорим про покупку билбордов, покупку какой-то публичной рекламы, то опять-таки даже коммерческие предприятия ставят блок на, для политических партий оппозиционного толка, в то время как весь город завешен рекламой провластных партий, и в этом плане тоже есть четкие ограничения по политическим составляющим. Uh, commercial uh, companies that uh, were putting billboards, uh, ran public advertisement, whatever, uh, they were blackmailed not to take money from the opposition, so that uh, no uh, advertisement should be made. Если говорить про сам день голосования, который проходил непосредственно, то на самих участках, с точки зрения вот, проведения вот, самого дня голосования, было достаточно спокойно, и вот, грубых нарушений в день голосования пока в Петербурге не было. Но при подсчете голосов... Uh, to the contrary to the previous experiences in the particular voting day, uh, everything was uh, relatively calm and there was no major violations. Но при, при подсчете голосов непосредственно, когда началась уже вот э, обработка бюллетеней, все, наверное, худшие, наверное, в моем моем опыте, даже по сравнению с одиннадцатым годом, э, вот э, преступления, нарушения, которые были. 
but uh, du during the counting, in particular in St. Petersburg, the violations were worse ever, even worse than in 2011. Мы сталкивались с давлением наблюдателей, сталкивались с ситуацией, когда опять комиссии убегали с неподписанными протоколами, неготовыми бюллетенями, неготовыми документами, когда уже подписанные протоколы снова переписывались, и данные, которые вводились в газвыборы, они отличались от тех, которые были на участках. Uh, pushed away from the uh, uh, voting uh, stations uh, when uh, the result protocols were rewritten uh, by members of electoral commission, when the results that were uh, uh, put in the official electronic system different, uh, were different from the ones that, that were actually counted. Все это привело к тому, что особенно в округах, мы говорим про округах выборовского собрания, результат по целому ряду участков не совпадал с тем, которые видели наблюдатели на момент подсчета голосов первой. Ну и, конечно же, наверное, стоит подчеркнуть момент, что все это возможно было, наверное, в связи с тем, что и в Петербурге, и в Москве, и в Московской области была очень низкая явка. And that's all was was made possible because the turnover was extremely low. The Saint uh, uh, turnout, uh, the uh, uh, the turnout in Saint Petersburg was the lowest in the country. Власть всеми способами пыталась как снизить явку, так и, может быть, снизить интерес к выборам. Насчет этого у нас было меньшее количество сторонних, которые пришли на участки, и меньшее количество наблюдателей. And that was conscious strategy of the authorities to decrease interest to these elections, to make sure that people would stay home. And that affected the results of the opposition a lot. Ну, в целом, если завершаем, можно сказать, что в целом эти выборы скорее еще больше, может быть, нанесли удар по оппозиционным силам, особенно тем, которые участвовали в выборах, и тем, которые призывали участвовать в выборах, и сильно, скажем так, добавило аргументов тем, кто изначально выступал за бойкот. To conclude uh, the way those elections uh, uh, were implemented, it actually gave new arguments for those who are to boycott. Uh, the electoral system in Russia, to the, uh, to the radicals, uh, to those who want to uh, abstain from the uh, uh, voting uh, process, uh, and another major blow for the opposition and uh, for the democracy in Russia in general. Okay, thank you very much, Andre. If you don't mind, can you stay on the line so that if there are questions uh, later on you can answer? Okay. Uh, can I actually ask a question? Sure. Now, Андрей, результаты там посчитаны. У вас насколько отличаются результаты региональных выборов от федеральных? Есть серьезные расхождения между региональными данными и федеральными? I'm asking whether the results of the regional elections are different from the federal, because in numerous regions they are seriously different, and that's the indication that possible violations and fraud can could actually happen. Uh, 
Петербург традиционно демократический город. Здесь высокое влияние демократического электората. И в отличие от федеральных выборов, существенный процент набрала партия Яблоко. Порядка 9% сейчас у них. Санкт-Петербург uh, is traditionally a very uh, democratic uh, place, uh, and uh, in Санкт-Петербург Яблоко is staying pretty high with uh, 9 point something percent of the vote. В то время как на федеральном уровне полтора, и партия Роста за счет Оксаны Дмитриевой здесь, получается, набрала порядка Also, uh, so-called uh, party of growth—that's a new uh, 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 liberal but loyal to Putin uh, liberal political party uh, because of the popu uh, of uh, popular Oksana Dmitrieva, one of the popular deputies, uh, already former deputies of Russian uh, Duma, received 11 percent in in Saint Petersburg. Андрей, у меня не в этом вопрос, у меня вопрос, поскольку у вас были два, двое выборов параллельно, региональные и федеральные. Вот результаты по, конкретно по Питеру, подсчет голосов по федеральным выборам и по региональным, одинаковые цифры или разные? Совпадают. Совпадают, да? Да. Oh, uh, okay. okay, Andrei says that uh, numbers on the federal elections and regional elections in St. Petersburg are the same. Okay, thanks. Um, Andrei, please uh, hang on the line if you can, and let's move over now to Evgeny Minchinka. Hello? Здравствуйте. Go ahead. Жень, привет. Do you hear me? Привет, Илья. Да, слышим тебя хорошо. So, uh, I, I need uh, to, to make some kind of statement, or you, are you going to ask me any questions? So, how it works better? Well, I guess it would be helpful if you could just give us your perspective on the conduct of the elections, on how fair they seemed, both in terms of the campaign and the counting, uh, if there were any anomalies or surprises, if there were any regional variations, and just what your expectations are now. Okay. So, uh, I, I, I want to apologize. I, I don't have much of time. I, I have about 10-15 minutes, unfortunately, because uh, that, that, that's a... There are very hot uh, days. So uh, I can I can tell you that uh, I, I did not see any big problems with the election problems, and so I, I've heard some uh, a part of uh, Andrei Pivovarov's speech. Uh, so I, actually, I did not see any problems with uh, advertisement uh, or some campaigning for rallies of any oppositional candidates and. Actually, it was quite free. So, uh, talking about uh, election day, so we saw on Russian state TV uh, some uh, problems, and I know that some criminal charges are already on. So, and uh, I know that uh, there is a position of uh, Central Election Committee that all those cases have to be investigated. So for me, maybe the result of United Russia Party uh, was uh, unpredictable because uh, my idea was it will be less than 50%, but uh, it became higher. I, I guess maybe it's uh, because of, uh, uh, of a few reasons. 
One uh, is a quite low turnout, less than 50%. And uh, maybe the loyal voters came to the election, uh, to the poll stations. So <clears throat> the second reason is that uh, Vladimir Putin supported uh, very hardly United Russia in the last weeks before the elections. He had a meeting with a uh, with the members of United Russia Party, and they used his name in uh, the advertisement. So, and uh, Putin has an approval rating more than 80 percent. So, and also, uh, I guess that uh, candidates in the constituencies uh, helped uh, to the party rating because uh, United Russia had a had a candidate in more than uh, 200 constituencies. So the candidates uh, helped uh, to the party results. Also, I would say that uh, United Russia had a, had a candidate in 39 regional parliaments uh, uh, by party lists and constituencies uh, as well. And they had a governors, uh, we, we had a, about eight governors elections and uh, six of them were uh, direct. So I guess uh, it could have some kind of uh, cumulative effect. So if uh, there were some uh, specific issues with the counting, I, I would not say that were uh, higher than it was in uh, 2011. I guess that uh, compare in compare, uh, if we compare it with uh, an elections of uh, 2011, I would say that those elections were more competitive, more uh, legitimate, and uh, more honest. So, but uh, I, I guess that, of course, uh, that could be some some uh, some issues. But I would not say that. Uh, they had a huge impact on the results of those elections. Okay, thanks. Could you say something a little bit about the lead up to the elections and how the um, the, the media messages were were structured on the part of United Russia and the other parties, and just how um, much access to to especially the television that the the opposition parties had. So actually, I guess. Uh, they had almost equal, uh, but I would say that, of course, that parliamentary parties had a preferences. So, and uh, of course, uh, the leaders and the parliament members of the oppositional parties had a preferences uh, to visit TV before the elections. But at the same time, Grigory Evlinsky had a lot of opportunities. Boris Tito had a lot of opportunities. Um, if we are talking about uh, an election campaign as itself, so we had a debate time and we had a time on television. And so it was like shock when this guy from Parnas party, uh, Miles have said that, so we, we have to punish Putin, we have to impeach him. And so it was on state television and uh, there were know any censorship about that. And so actually, uh, this party of personal Putin haters, they received less than 1% of the votes. So 
this strategy was not effective, but they had an opportunity to represent uh, this strategy. So I would say that problem with so-called liberal opposition was with the wrong message, with the wrong strategy and wrong campaigning. So, for example, I guess that the uh, first term of uh, Yablaka party list was good. Uh, so, for example, Galina Shershina, ex-mayor of Petrozavodsk, and Emilia Slobonova, uh, the deputy from uh, Karelia, and some other guys, they actually could be a good debater, but uh, they all, they even did not have a part in any debates, and Grigory Yavlinsky took part. Sometimes Schlossberg did. But I guess uh, he made a huge mistake when on uh, his inter interview on uh, Rain Channel, he uh, said twice, Crimea is Ukraine, Crimea is Ukraine. So when he said that, they, he, he, I guess he uh, hit it, his own party. And I guess this idea about using this rhetoric about Crimea issue was a huge mistake for Yablaka. And also, I would say that Grigory Yulinsky is a too old-fashioned guy and too obsolete for Russian electorate. So it was a it was a very big mistake to say that this is just the first day uh, for Grigory Yulinsky presidential campaign. So it was big mistake. So talking about Parnas party, so I, I say that. This idea to, to forget about any liberal values and say only about hate uh, in Putin's address was, was a mistake as well. Also as uh, uh, using uh, xenophobic rhetoric. So when uh, this uh, Maltsev guy called uh, the leader of uh, Liberal Democratic Party uh, Vladimir Zhirinovsky, all Jew. I would say that some of my friends on liberal flank and some of my uh, beloved Jew friends, of course, they would not vote for this guy after this hate speech. So, and I would say this party of growth, uh, which was headed by Baristitov, they had a good prospects, but they did not use it. Uh, they had a uh, not specific message, uh, they did not understand where they voters and how to achieve them. But I guess that they would have uh, more than 5%, but the campaign was so terrible that so they, they have a one and something percent of the votes. So my idea is that parties on liberal flank they had it possibilities, but unfortunately, they did not use it. I, I say, I, unfortunately, because I think that I am people, I am the guy with the liberal values, and so it's it's bad for me that uh, no one liberal party uh, is not represented in our parliament. But we have to blame for this only the leaders and uh, their strategic teams. Okay, thank you very much, Evgeny. It's an old story, unfortunately, the, the Russian liberal opposition's own uh, inability to unite and to put together a strong campaign. I know you have to go, but do you have time to take uh, one or two questions?
Yes, yes. Okay. So if there are any questions just for Evgeny Minchenko right now, let's take those. Yeah, well, if there are no others, then I'll ask uh, Ilya to ask a question. Uh, Jean, uh, one question for you. Uh, you are a famous Kremli Kremlinologist, expert on <laughs> hidden moves. Uh, so, uh, Vyacheslav Volodin was elected to Duma, uh, the, the uh -huh. guy who is the architect of this uh, uh, electoral system. Firstly, do you think that he would actually move to Duma? And secondly, do you think that if he moves, then the functions of the uh, uh, political management of the presidential staff will move with him to Duma? And Duma will finally become an independent institution with a separate political management uh, uh, capabilities. So uh, there are a lot of rumors, but uh, nobody knows except uh, only one person, Vladimir Putin. <laughs> I guess maybe. So you mean Volodin doesn't know this either? Yeah. Yes, I guess so. But so let let's see. We, we just have to wait about one month. Okay. Last chance. Any other questions for Evgeny? All right, Jenga. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. OK, now I will actually give the floor to Ilya to you know, talk about whatever he wants to talk about. Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, actually, uh, what I wanted to say, I want to briefly uh, uh, describe actually the results of the elections. You know, So what, what, what are the numbers, which I think uh, what are the numbers are most uh, relevant and important. So firstly, as you all know, uh, turn out 47%. That means uh, uh, minus 14% from the uh, previous one. So uh, one quarter of voters that were participating in previous parliamentary elections didn't come uh, this time. That's first important thing. Uh, secondly, uh, United Russia, uh, this is the first time when uh, 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 electoral system wo uh, worked as half uh, of people got elected in majority districts and half got elected in uh, uh, on party list. For the majority districts, United Russia didn't cover all the majority districts. They uh, delegated uh, uh, 20, 19 actually, uh, majority districts to uh, uh, opposition political parties uh, voluntarily and uh, didn't run in those districts. So altogether, United Russia put 206 candidates, uh, not 225, the, the overall number of districts. Uh, out of these 206, 203 won. Three were defeated by communists. All three were defeated by uh, candidates from the communists. Uh, from those uh, who were running on uh, uh, separated, uh, uh, excluded uh, majority districts, uh, all projected candidates won. So uh, seven uh, were won by uh, Adjust Russia, uh, my former uh, party. Seven uh, were won by the communists. Uh, five were won by liberal Democrats. And the first time since long time, three candidates were independent. Independent means uh, two uh, Kremlin spoiler political parties, Rodina, the leader of that party, 
uh, was allowed to get to to be elected in Voronezh, and the leader of uh, uh, so-called uh, civil platform. Uh, this is the guy who uh, actually raided the party and took it away from Prokhorov, our famous oligarch, uh, Mr. Shamsudinov, was allowed to win uh, in return uh, for this favor in uh, Bashkiri. Uh, one candidate is formally independent, Vladislav Reznik, he won in Adegea. This is a very interesting case because Vladislav Reznik is the guy who, is put, who was put on the internationally wanted list by Spain uh, police uh, for major money laundering. Uh, and being a part of uh, mafia with uh, traces to Vladimir Putin personally. Uh, so he was allowed to run, but not officially on United Russia, despite he was a long-time member of United Russia and was even chairman of Financial Markets Committee of uh, State Duma uh, on, uh, as, as member of United Russia. So he was allowed to run and to win in Adegea also without any resistance. Um, uh, uh, what else is important? From the majority districts, only one candidate had real chance uh, to win. It was Dmitry Gudkov, whom we will uh, uh, hear a little bit later. Uh, he uh, lost very little bit uh, to uh, a United Russia candidate, but nevertheless, nevertheless lost. Uh, with this candidate, it was another interesting phenomenon, which is the first time in Russian elections for a very long time, uh, when overseas votes mattered, uh, uh, because it was a major uh, brain drain from Russia after the annexation of Crimea, which I personally estimate as 1.5 million uh, people left Russia uh, since March uh, 2014. As the result, right now, there are 2 million uh, uh, eligible voters uh, which live outside Russia, which could have come and voted in the, in the embassies and consulate offices. Uh, not so many of them actually came. Uh, but uh, it happened that uh, American uh, voters, uh, I mean Russian voters in America, they were linked to the electoral district of Dmitry Gudkov. Of course, Dmitry Gudkov won here uh, with, the head of, uh, with the help of my chief of staff, Anastasia, who is standing there, who was organizing campaign for Dmitry here in, in the United States, uh, which helped to narrow uh, uh, the gap, but unfortunately not sufficiently uh, to close it completely. Uh, lastly, what I wanted to say in terms of numbers, that uh, all political parties except for United Russia uh, lost their representation in Duma significantly, despite that uh, uh, communists and uh, so-called liberal democrats, they increased their percentage, but because of the new electoral system, a faction of communist party slashed more than half from 90 seats to 40. Uh, a faction of liberal democrats uh, also by half from 63 to 32, uh, and just Russia uh, from 64 to 23, uh, which is the uh, uh, most uh, uh, loss uh, among all the, uh, all, all, all the factions. Um, the major hope of uh, democratic opposition was Yablaka political party, who really uh, created uh, a very strong party list 
was a true democratic coalition based on that party for the first time since the existence of that party, but even core electorate of Yabloka didn't come to vote. Uh, in uh, uh, 2011, Yabloka collected uh, uh, almost 2 million votes. Uh, this time they collected around 700,000. And uh, in 2011, it was only core electorate of Yabloka because it was a, a coalition based on a just Russia, on my political, uh, my former political party. Uh, so that means that those voters should have turned to Yabloka as well this time. Uh, uh, that means that the mobilization campaign totally failed and, and Kremlin was extremely successful in uh, what they call drying up uh, the, the, the turnout. Uh, uh, the result in terms of legitimacy of this Duma is that 24% of voters who uh, voted for United Russia now got 76% representation uh, in, in State Duma, um, which of course is uh, uh, very, very low. Um, and the last one to say about the legitimacy of the elected Duma, despite that I do agree with uh, Yevgeny that uh, voting process per se was more or less uh, transparent, it was better than in previous election with the exceptions. St. Petersburg was one of the dirtiest uh, regions, uh, unfortunately, uh, uh, in terms of voting process, but the legitimacy is not affected by, uh, by the counting. The legitimacy is affected by the factor of Crimea. Uh, according to all international uh, uh, norms that Russia has ratified and participating, uh, elections on occupied territories should not be recognized. Um, uh, Russian Duma, half of it, as it was elected on the party list, included voting in the Crimea. That means that half of Duma is illegitimate because it included Crimea as the voting uh, uh, place. It was included in the district, plus additional four seats were uh, elected exclusively in Crimea. That means that 50% plus four seats in Duma is, uh, are elected uh, uh, illegally. And uh, that's why I personally think and uh, uh, I call for it officially as a, a, a former member of Russian parliament that this Duma would not be recognized as a legitimate uh, uh, parliament by uh, international uh, community. Lastly, what I wanted to say in general about the result and about the messages and about the support. Uh, what we saw during the whole of election campaign, we saw that uh, uh, approval ratings of United Russia were dropping. Uh, their popular support at the beginning of this year was uh, uh, at 60% by all major pollsters. At the end, uh, uh, it was at a level of 40%. Why they got so, such a large result is because of the reformed electoral system. Uh, uh, that's why on this same venue, uh, uh, three years ago, I was saying that they will get constitutional majority. It was very well uh, predicted result, but not because of popular support. And this is a major problem for uh, the current regime in, uh, in, in Russia, uh, because of course people who are not represented, they will be represented through the street. 
at the end of the day. And in particular in Russia, the uh, threat that it may result in the bloodshed is, is uh, unfortunately uh, uh, pretty high. Opposition, uh, which tried to exploit political uh, messages during this campaign, and here I also would agree with uh, Evgeny Minchenko, uh, didn't hit what, what is mostly uh, uh, touching for Russian voters. And Russian voters are concerned about the deepening economic crisis, about uh, the wages, uh, uh, about the prices in the stores, about the utilities, about the roads, uh, about uh, uh, financial independence of regions, about education, about healthcare. Uh, these are things which are most important for them. And uh, Yablaka tried to speak about this, and that's why they got the best result. Uh, but still, it was uh, totally overshadowed uh, by the political uh, uh, messages. And they were not so interesting for the voters uh, uh, during the election. And as Vladimir Putin, I think, absolutely correctly said when he was uh, um, uh, uh, giving his statement after the, re the results of the elections, he said, United Russia may be not the best party, uh, maybe it does a lot of mistakes, but uh, there is nobody who's better. And so this is uh, how Russians actually perceive uh, the situation. Yes, they are bad, they are crooks, they are thieves, uh, you know, they are bureaucrats, uh, they are very distant, but there is nobody who is better. And I do believe that the only alternative is if the opposition would, uh, build, uh, would be built on the left flank of the political spectrum and not on the right flank as uh, all the attempts were, were made before. Uh, as the opposition would uh, uh, feed itself from 1990s, from Yeltsin, uh, from, uh, from politics, from democracy, from freedom of speech, etc., it will always lose elections, as it would focus on the social and economic issues, then when the chances would reemerge. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much, Ilya. We were hoping to have Dmitry um, Gudkov, but apparently we're having technical difficulties, so if at some point he's able to call in, um, we will uh, give him the floor. But in the meantime, um, Henry, we've had the 30-foot perspective. Ilya gave us about the 3,000-foot the perspective. So uh, turning it over to you now to see if we could get maybe the 30,000-foot perspective. Yes, I've been asked to talk about kind of the big, big picture uh, to contribute at least my interpretation. Um, and so I'll be very interested to hear uh, more from you all as well as from the others in the course of the discussion. Uh, which I found very interesting so far. Um, my sense is that uh, kind of thinking uh, big picture, um, patterns of politics in this part of the world uh, tend to follow long-term cycles of intense periods of contestation and instability and periods of sort of maybe dis satisfied stability, you know, where people satisfy uh, themselves with lessers of evils, uh, as uh, my colleague just pointed out. Um, I think that the peaks of contestation tend to occur um, when uh, leaders uh, are uh, facing succession, 
issues, uh, at least when they start to become looming, and that starts to create fissures within the uh, administration themselves as different networks and, and factions within the leading group start jockeying for position when a leadership might change, um, and also when these leaders tend to suffer drops in popularity. Um, but I think, um, you know, in particular in Russia, we saw some tensions uh, like this in 2008 and, of course, in 2011, 2012. Um, you know, these were periods where I think some kind of cracks in the system uh, helped create space for uh, the popular discontent that I think does exist to build up and take on a, a larger, um, uh, to, to, to take on some larger dimensions. Um, and um, I think now, sort of thinking where we are now, I think we're sort of at the beginning of a, a long phase um, where I think we're sort of in the early parts of the phase where um, the system is relatively stable so long as the regime operates uh, in, uh, according to, uh, you know, kind of basic competency um, and manipulates the levers of the system effectively. And I'll talk about that in a moment. Um, and I think that the, the real tension is likely to emerge, um, frankly, only uh, once we start approaching 2024, which is when Putin's uh, constitutionally allowed uh, second term starts to run out. And I'm not saying that's because he was going to necessarily abide by the Constitution, but I think that the, the fact that um, that exists, I think that lends people to start to expect tensions around that time. And so a lot of what we're seeing now, I think, is um, political forces jockeying for position, uh, playing a long game. Uh, and the first step in that game, I think, will be the 2018 presidential election. So uh, we've already seen in the immediate aftermath of this election um, a number of, of people make announcements that they're going to contest the elections or not. So I think that this is kind of a test of strength for the presidential elections, which is what really matters. Uh, so for the uh, Putin administration, it's especially important that it gets its mechanism uh, right, its ability to um, control and, and get the desired electoral result. Um, uh, but and so it's a test of both methods and it's a test of strength um, for for the, uh, the the Putin leadership. Um, and so I think in this context, what we can see is that the main result, uh, which is what my uh, uh, the, the other speaker so far basically said, is that the um, I think to some degree the 20 uh, 1011-12 uh, recalibration of the system um, has largely worked, um, at least in the short run. Um, whether or not this will bubble up into discontent in the longer run uh, remains to be seen. Um, so in particular, I have in mind the recalibration that took place along institutional lines and um, in, in, in terms of efforts by the regime to uh, build up its own popular support. So um, first of all, uh, as uh, Deputy Ponomaryov mentioned, the uh, single member districts are now effectively the bulwark of support in parliament for uh, the, uh, the current leadership. And this goes back to a situation that had effectively existed in 2003, uh, but then as the political machine developed its strength, as it uh, gained popularity, in particular the United Russia as a party was able to um, potentially clear uh, a majority uh, in the proportional representation, the party list competition by itself, um, they decided to get rid of the district deputies. And basically this is because district deputies are not completely reliable. It's much better uh, from the perspective of a, uh, a party leader um, or a, a regime leader to have people who are directly beholden to you for their 
um, uh, places on the party list and in Parliament, um, whereas uh, district deputies have at least some opportunity to build up their own personal um, bases of support that they can then leverage and, and use for bargaining um, against the, the authorities. And this doesn't mean they're necessarily going to go into opposition. They need resources from the center in order to compete. Um, but it's a little harder and more costly for uh, the Kremlin to control uh, these figures. And so um, the switch back to restore the district elected deputies, uh, uh, which was made right after the 2011 protests, um, was a reaction to the fact that they anticipated that United Russia was not going to have the levels of popular support that it had once had, that it, had, it was weakening, and the anticipation that maybe the econo economy is not going to recover as much as it would have. So it's kind of a fallback position. They're kind of falling back to the position that they had earlier in the regime, and that I think reflects um, a tactical shift um, designed to do exactly what happened, which was United Russia was not capable of winning a supermajority on its own, even with all the might of the administrative resources that the, the Kremlin team controlled, um, at least not without just outright banning uh, other parties, which it decided not to do. Um, and so the districts have provided for this. So suddenly uh, you have uh, not only a supermajority necessary for constitutional changes, uh, but over three quarters of the seats of the Duma now controlled. And again, the vast bulk of this is, is thanks to the changes in the Duma, uh, in, in the, the, the Duma institutional rules and the, and the creation of the deputies. Um, I would say, however, I mean, there's certainly some important changes in the, the nature of these uh, district deputies and uh, the ability and how they fit into the system compared to 2003 when they last, when you last had elections to the districts. Um, in 2003, um, they were much less under control. Uh, certainly, um, the Kremlin was able to use the deputies that got elected then to cobble together the majorities it needed. Um, but even so, at the point of election um, in 2003, there were 98 of the 225 deputies elected this way that were not nominees of a major party. And so, you know, even when they were running for office, they were clinging to their uh, independence. And so they had a lot more. Whereas now, um, as Mr. Ponomario mentioned, um, the, uh, basically everybody won that the Kremlin wanted to win in the district. So it's a much more efficient political machine now in terms of, of getting deputies elected who are going to be more beholden to them. But at the same time, I do see it as something that's a little riskier. But uh, this is an example of how the uh, regime recalibrates uh, in an effort to maintain political control. Um, the second major reform that was uh, adopted after the 2011 uh, protests or in response to them largely was a relaxation of the rules for party registration, which allowed the number of parties that were registered to go from seven to, I don't know how many, over 100 now, I think. And as we see, we have 14 parties that were able to compete in this election. Um, so on one hand, this is liberalization, but on the other hand, um, uh, you know, it, it reflects a different way of manipulating the outcome uh, because uh, you have a proliferation of these parties that are effectively sponsored by the regime uh, or certainly uh, facilitated strongly by the regime uh, like the, uh, uh, the, the, the uh, what, what is it, the uh, Communist Party, Party of Communists, uh, the Party of Pensioners for Justice, um, which are clearly designed to sap votes from other um, parties that are not United Russia. Um, and there are a whole host of other parties along these lines that one could point to as well. Um, so effectively in allowing more parties, uh, it creates opportunities, uh, greater opportunities for splitting the vote when you do go ahead and allow some of the other parties onto the ballot. 
Um, so uh, I think this election also validates the, um, uh, this particular tactic as a strategy for um, helping to win. Plus, you get more people appearing on television in debates that can attack the parties that you want attacked, and it doesn't have to all come from United Russia. Um, and uh, of course, finally, we have to mention the rescheduling of the elections, uh, which Duma elections have traditionally taken place in December to September, um, which I think does seem to have contributed to a much lower key campaign since a lot of it overlapped with uh, summer months when people weren't really thinking about the elections and, and part of the result was low uh, turnout. Um, so that's the institutional side, and I'll just very briefly mention, I think, um, the uh, moves that have been, at least in the short run, a success uh, in terms of uh, ginning up support for United Russia and Putin. Of course, uh, this was after 2011, the, the, the move to um, really push Putin coming back to the presidency as a father of the nation uh, and really put the emphasis on him personally, um, even more than they had done in the past. Um, the uh, so-called conservative turn, um, an appeal to uh, you know, all these different uh, uh, you know, anti, the anti-gay law, the um, uh, ban on adoptions uh, by uh, Americans, the ban on gay adoptions, the anti-blasphemy law, lots of these things, which actually have large uh, public support, um, especially outside the big cities. Um, you know, I think this did a lot to help uh, restore the collapsing support uh, of both Putin and uh, United Russia that was taking place uh, after 2011 and the elections there that were uh, something of a disaster for the regime. Um, and uh, finally, of course, we have to mention the, the Crimea uh, annexation, uh, which did lead to a, a significant bump in Putin's uh, popularity, which has uh, reflected to some degree on United Russia as well. Um, now, of course, the support for these uh, different parts of the uh, different arms of the regime, the United Russia ruling party, the, uh, or the dominant party, I guess I'd put it, um, uh, Putin, depends on a lot of things. The economy is also clearly very important, and I think you know, we've seen its, uh, the, the party's support uh, wane uh, on, on, as a result largely of the economic crisis that's been taking place. Uh, but at the same time, I think it's important to keep in mind that there are these other bases of support uh, that uh, United Russia and Putin have tapped into um, that have given it at least something to work with. So, uh, you know, I think partly, while we definitely are seeing the result of a very effective political machine, um, uh, cleverly manipulated media, um, which has been biased and uh, given special opportunities to uh, United Russia as opposed to other parties, um, according to most analyses uh, that I would call objective, um, at the same time, it does have something to work with, which I think uh, prevents its support from completely uh, collapsing. And these have to do with associations with certain political views, the uh, a sense that the party is competent or at least more competent than others. And this gets back to the idea of maybe it's kind of a lesser of evils. And it's a catch-22 for opposition parties. They're not allowed to get in, in power and to actually do something. So after a while, they become seen as uh, removed from the real workings of, of administration and unable to provide the, the basic services that people want, even if they may be saying the right things like in the case of Yablica, it's been, um, you know, I don't know how many, over two decades since Yavlinsky held uh, uh, an administrative executive uh, office. Um, and so this all creates 26. dilemmas for the 26, yeah, yeah. Um, and so that has effects over time. Um, so um, I think in the, in the end then, I think what we've seen is a, uh, a successful recalibration of the political regime since the, the crisis it faced after 2011, I'm saying successful from the regime's perspective. Um, now the task 
goes to moving forward. Um, and uh, I think it's going to have to find some way to keep maintaining public support in, in order to maintain its stability over the longer run. Um, my sense is that the 2018 presidential elections is not going to be a major crisis for it for a variety of reasons that I could go into, um, unless it makes some major, major mistakes. Um, I think popular uprisings are uh, possible uh, to challenge it, but my guess is that it's going to ride these out. Um, but I think it starts to enter um, a danger zone once the 2018 elections start taking place. Uh, I mean, maybe they'll be held earlier, too. That's another topic we haven't talked about. You know, in light of the success, maybe they'll hold the presidentials earlier just to kind of get to that next phase. But the next phase, I think, is actually uh, particularly dangerous, um, and especially if they try to make moves which would allow Putin to stay in office longer. Um, these can become flashpoints for um, the same or even maybe greater forms of political resistance uh, like those we saw in 2011 when people were objecting in part to Putin coming back. Um, even from Medvedev, who wasn't that much of a, a difference. Um, so let me leave it there, and uh, thanks for your attention, and I look forward to the rest of the discussion. Um, with the, the two panelists that we have here, Ilya, I was struck by one of the things you said towards the end, where you talked about how, given the, the conduct of the elections and the makeup of the current Duma, the likelihood of opposition, frustration, leading ultimately to bloodshed is, is significantly higher. And then, Henry, you were talking about moving ahead to 2024 and the possibility of much more intense... Uh, they would start from below, from grassroots processes, uh, way lower than that they would start from the top. Um, and it's a long-standing Russian tradition. And even uh, October Revolution of uh, 1917 started from February Revolution of the same year, which was uh, actually a coup that was orchestrated by the uh, close surrounding of uh, uh, Tsar Nicholas the uh, second. Um, I think that um, the transition process in 2018 may indeed go very smoothly for Vladimir Putin, but in one condition, if uh, international sanctions would be lifted. Uh, uh, Russian elites uh, they are not exactly suffering from the sanctions, but uh, they are very wearisome. And uh, this is a constant threat, uh, especially a threat which is coming from financial institutions. This is a uh, great inconvenience uh, for doing business in the country. There are a lot of minor but very uh, painful things which are associated with, uh, uh, with those sanctions, so they definitely want them to be lifted. Not that they, their life depends on it, but really it's inconvenient. 
and the current promise that Kremlin gives uh, uh, to the elites that wait a little bit, West is very weak, it's very inconsistent, double standards, we have Syria, we have Brexit, you know, we have uh, elections in the United States. Uh, now it's additional showcase of uh, Kremlin's might uh, uh, in terms of uh, internal elections. Wait a little bit, in 2017 sanctions will be lifted, we'll be back to business as usual. And Russia would re-emerge as more powerful player, not as a weaker uh, player in terms of uh, uh, international community. And unfortunately, I think that this calculation is very close to, uh, uh, to actually happen. Uh, so I think that if this would happen, then 2011, no protests, no unrest, no split within the elites. Yes, we will go uh, until either the economy will collapse, which I believe would not happen in the uh, near future because still Russia is very uh, powerful in terms of oil and gas, in terms of metals, in terms of uh, diamonds, coal, whatsoever, any kind of natural resources. They always would be sold for hard currency. Uh, the modern day world is, uh, has deficit in natural uh, resources. We have China as alternative. Uh, uh, consumer of them. We have uh, Europe, which anyway would need uh, uh, especially uh, uh, natural, natural gas, and that would help uh, uh, this regime to sustain. And uh, whatever problems uh, we would have, uh, they would result in higher prices, they would result in devaluation of ruble, but that all will be blamed on United States and on bloody imperialists and, uh, you know, foreign threat. Uh, and Putin is the only savior uh, uh, from, uh, from those outside threats. And that would actually work to reinforce his regime and, uh, and not to uh, uh, weaken him. So the only way uh, to achieve uh, uh, changes in Russia, it's number one to be consistent and uh, honest and, uh, in, in all the messages uh, and uh, to match words with deeds. And secondly, uh, uh, is about Ukraine, because that's also what uh, Russians uh, uh, inevitably are looking at because of the uh, relatives and because of the proximity of the, of the country and the language and uh, etc. If Ukraine would start uh, reforming for better, finally, uh, and uh, it would be seen as that the revolution and the Western influence can generate some good. Uh, for the common people and uh, for their personal wallets, uh, then it would affect uh, Russian constituents as well. Yeah, uh, thanks. It's a very interesting question. Um, I guess my sense is that, uh, you know, of course, protests are possible. Uh, protests can break out for a lot of reasons, and sometimes you have small protests that start to uh, cascade into uh, larger ones. Um, say, if the economy really does start to perform much uh, worse than it currently is. Uh, but at the same time, my, my sense is that, uh, again, while I think maybe rule number one for certainly a analyst of Russia based outside is not to be too confident in one's own predictions about what's going to happen in Russia, um, my guess is that uh, the uh, current administration in Russia is in a very good position to survive 
um, significant protests and to you know somehow find a way to engineer um, a, a win in the 2018 presidential elections. I mean, first of all, right now, I think Putin's popularity levels are such that uh, you know, you'd likely see that in any case, um, even with a significant liberalization. Um, but even if uh, you know, even if one assumes that uh, that that glow from Crimea is going to fade uh, and uh, that economic problems start to uh, weigh against uh, the uh, uh, popularity of, of the leader. Um, we, we see lots of regimes that are able to survive in power um, you know, due to other methods and, and manipulations of the political system, uh, even when they're quite unpopular. And I just don't see Putin's popularity collapsing to the level uh, by 2018, certainly, that it would be uh, necessary uh, for uh, him to lose this election. Um, but again, you can never rule things out. Uh, sometimes leaders make big mistakes. Um, so uh, again, I, I wouldn't expect, but I just don't expect 2018 to be much more dramatic than this election uh, currently was. Um, of course, I think then moving forward, one has to think about what could come next. And I think for uh, Mr. Putin, um, he has to think about a lot of things, uh, including, you know, e even if we think about succession in terms of constitutional term limits uh, and think, well, okay, he can easily sidestep those somehow. Um, you know, father time is approaching, right? I mean, by that time, he's going to be in his uh, 70s. Um, and, uh, you know, these are times that start getting perilous for uh, leaders. Um, and so he's going to have to start thinking about the future of his family and his friends. Um, and um, sometimes we see leaders enact reforms designed to constrain their successors. Uh, so that would be the optimistic scenario, I think, for Russia, which would be um, some kind of constitutional reforms that take place. Uh, this certain supermajority in the Duma certainly uh, won't hurt that possibility, uh, which would be designed to uh, weaken whoever came after uh, Putin. And again, I'm not predicting that this is likely, but I think there are a number of scenarios that we uh, could see uh, as being at least worth uh, considering uh, as we move forward uh, in the future. Um, so um, I guess I think that uh, you know, some political turmoil is possible, especially if the economy continues to, to uh, spiral downward uh, or if the regime makes significant mistakes. Uh, but I don't see um, a, a real serious bout of instability occurring until much later, as several, I'd say several years down the line, well after this next re-election. Okay, uh, let's throw it open to questions. Um, please, we have microphones. Yes, we have microphones. Please wait for one. Um, identify yourself, state your affiliation, and please do ask a question. Hi, thanks very much. Very interesting. My name is Mindy Reiser. I've had the opportunity to monitor elections in the former Soviet Union republics. In fact, I've just come from one. So I have a couple of questions. Some of them are from ignorance, but I'll ask them anyway. In some countries, there is, first of all, mandatory voting. It's pretty clear this wasn't the case. But in some countries as well, precinct election commissions kind of check up uh, on people, uh, encourage them that day to vote and so on. I want to know if this happens in Russia. That's one. I'm wondering if Mr. Gorbachev had anything to say prior to the election. I, I regret I don't really read the Russian press, so I don't know, but some of you do, and you might be able to enlighten me. And the third question is about the role of deputies in the Duma. Is it anything like, at least ideally, we have when they're representatives 
um, respond to constituents' problems. I'm talking here about very grassroots problems. There are potholes. Uh, such and such uh, state agency isn't working very well. Do deputies ever meet with their constituents? If you could enlighten me on some of these nitty-gritty grassroots questions. Okay, so what, are the, what do um, the parties or the United Russia, the administration, do to goose turnout, uh, Gorbachev, and then what do Duma deputies actually do? Uh, I'll start from the second one. Thanks God, Gorbachev didn't participate in the elections <laughs> and didn't say, uh, didn't say nothing about them. Uh, because uh, this guy, uh, in terms of Russians, he has like an anti-Midas touch. You know, uh, if he supports somebody, you know, it would be immediately ruined. Uh, uh, so uh, he basically lives right now his private life, uh, travels internationally. His health is right now not that good. Uh, but still he tries to, um, uh, when, whenever possible, to travel and, and to speak at different occasions in other countries. But in Russia he is genuinely hated. Uh, uh, if he would be up for elections, he would not have even 0.1% of, of popular support. Um, uh, in terms of uh, how deputies work, uh, uh, so I was MP for nine years. Uh, I always tried to be as close to my constituents as possible, despite that I was elected on the party list uh, from Novosibirsk, the capital of Siberia, Novosibirsk region. It's a huge region. Uh, so for you to understand the scale, it's uh, um, some uh, 500 uh, miles wide and some 300 miles uh, in terms of height on the map. Uh, so I traveled a lot. Uh, I was primarily elected with the votes in the rural uh, part uh, of uh, the region. The region is split half and half between the city and, uh, and uh, rural areas. And we somehow, like, we had an informal agreement with communists because this, uh, this region is very left-wing. It's very opposition-minded. And we decided that we shouldn't uh, um, uh, uh, actually violate each other. And uh, so they were focusing more on the city, and I was focusing more on uh, rural areas, despite that I uh, was uh, chairing the innovation subcommittee, and uh, Novosibirsk is the capital of Russian uh, innovations, Russian Academy of uh, Sciences, uh, uh, and actually that's how I moved to Novosibirsk in the first in the first place. But still, I was more focused on the rural areas. So of course, I uh, had a lot of meetings with people during the campaign, uh, in between campaigns, uh, in my everyday work. I had a network of uh, my political aides uh, who are working in the region. Um, uh, I uh, was one of uh, top five uh, uh, deputies in the Russian parliament in terms of number of documents uh, which are being issued to support uh, uh, different people, people needs. Uh, uh, the bulk of them is different, uh, uh, I would say, uh, defense uh, uh, measures because when people feel powerless in front of uh, uh, their local attorneys or local police officers or when they had problems with their pensions, uh, with uh, other uh, municipal, regional, federal uh, uh, agencies, they usually 
usually were coming to me as an opposition deputy because they knew that I could bring uh, media attention to it and, uh, and, uh, and generally pressure and bureaucrats don't like uh, being in the spotlight. That's why they, uh, uh, in many cases, we managed to resolve uh, 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 the problems and that's what the network of AIDS is doing. Uh, more, I was expanding my network beyond uh, Novosibirsk Altogether, by law, I have 45 uh, political aides. Uh, 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 they are not paid, uh, it's a voluntary uh, work, but uh, from them I have uh, around 20 in the region and uh, others, they are scattered across the country. So I was receiving different uh, requests and, and claims and letters uh, from other regions and I was working with them. Uh, uh, as well. Uh, in general, Russian deputies, they have a privilege of uh, having their uh, 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 tickets, whatever they are, uh, air, uh, train, uh, bus, whatsoever, paid by the state. So I could travel a lot and I was using this opportunity. I was always on the move uh, in, in the country, visiting different uh, regions and, and uh, talking to people. Um, uh, United Russia deputies, by the way, are also doing the same, not all of them, because they understand that their mandates, they are not coming from the people, but uh, from the superiors, but still uh, some of them want to be useful. And some of them are normal people who justify their presence in United Russia, that they're actually helping people, that they are voting for terrible laws, but on the other hand, they are helping particular people. Uh, and they also do work uh, uh, with, uh, with the constituents. Although in United Russia, I would estimate that's maybe a, like uh, one-fifth of, of their deputies actually do work with people. Um, for United Russia, it's slightly easier because they have access to resources and they can talk to local governor or to local mayor because they're all members of the same party. So for them, it's easy uh, uh, to solve uh, problems for opposition. It's way harder, um, but they can do it. The difference from Congress people uh, uh, here in the United States is that uh, in Russia, in theory, uh, Duma uh, passes the budget, so it has influence over uh, state appropriations, uh, but that's in theory. Uh, in practice, it's all been done within the government. Uh, and uh, in, for example, 1990s, uh, even the communists, which were in the opposition all the time, could influence the budget. And that was the source of their influence because people knew that they can lobby for a bridge, they can lobby for a road, they can lobby for uh, uh, additional appropriations for the region, for the municipality, for whatever. Now we cannot do it. Uh, so we can like campaign for it, you know, we can, we can talk about it, but that's not something that we can actually deliver. Uh, and this is a sort of frustration, it's one of the sort of uh, uh, sources of uh, popularity uh, for United Russia because they always stress that we at least can fix you the roof on the, on the school because we are buddy buddies with the governor and you know if we talk to the governor, the governor will give you money and he will fix, fix you the school. And if you vote for those bastards, you know, you will never get money for the school. Uh, and it's, uh, it was a reported case uh, 
on the uh, uh, recent regional campaign uh, in uh, Samara region uh, when the governor was coming to some village where a new road was constructed. Uh, and he felt like people are not greeting him with proper enthusiasm. And he said, if you will not uh, greet me properly, I will ruin the road. <laughs> and, and people took it absolutely seriously. You know, that was in all the media, you know, it, it was a lot of anger. Uh, uh, but uh, that's how people actually feel. In the back. Yeah, and in terms of st stimulating the turnout, every time they were doing it before, because uh, traditionally in Russia, high turnout was the source of legitimacy. And always, all those lo local precincts, you know, all those uh, local uh, uh, people, usually they're linked with schools, they were campaigning, calling, you know, giving, the, doing their best to make sure that people will come and vote. And in these elections, this was the first time, they actually were hiding. There were reports that people couldn't find their polling station uh, uh, because they were moving, you know, and uh, uh, they did their best so that people will not come, that it's only authorized people will come uh, to vote. Uh, people who are employed with the local utility companies, uh, uh, you know, local uh, construction workers, local budget workers, so those who are under control. Hi, I'm Sam Rebo from Eurasia Group. Um, my question is, what's the game plan going forward for the liberal opposition in Russia? Um, what plans do you have uh, to gain support again? And uh, is there any discussion of uh, uniting uh, groups like Parnas and Yablaka? Probably also for me. Uh, firstly, I think that the current opposition is hopeless. Uh, and uh, in this uh, situation, these uh, results, while they are deeply disappointing, uh, they may help, uh, have a very healthy effect at the end of the day. Uh, because according to Russian legislation, if you are getting lower than 3%, you are not eligible for state funding, which Yablaka was enjoying for years. And you also have to collect signatures when putting your candidates uh, on the local elections. Also, that was a privilege that was source of uh, some very modest, but still some donor funding uh, uh, for the same Yablok uh, uh, and, and, and some others. Right now, it's all lost. So it's, uh, it's basically a blank sheet of paper to create something new. Uh, the major problem is that uh, media attention is focused on people from the liberal uh, part of the opposition. And in Russian understanding, liberal means right liberal. It means new liberal. Uh, it doesn't mean left liberal, rather, that, that it is in, in, in the United States, for example. Um, uh, uh, to my mind, uh, uh, only opposition force which is positioned uh, uh, as left liberal uh, a social democratic uh, uh, opposition, a socialist opposition, only that opposition has chances. Uh, I uh, uh, totally against any sort of populism, but uh, from the other side, if you, would, if you are in the opposition and you're saying that we are for the unpopular market reforms, uh, 
you know, you would not get many votes. You know, uh, uh, at least you should say something which is, uh, which is popular. And that's about real problems that Russians do have. It's about healthcare, education, this kind of things. This is our most uh, top issues on the agenda. And people who are associated with the position right now, uh, uh, even uh, uh, murdered uh, Boris Nemtsov, uh, they were the people who were drafting these uh, reforms uh, at, at the very first place. So you cannot expect them to be popular. Uh, their negative support is uh, way higher than any of the United Russia people. Uh, uh, so uh, it has to be built from the scratch. And that's why uh, also I'm saying that I think that the changes would start from the top. Uh, uh, because, uh, uh, of course, Putin is enjoying uh, very high uh, popular support. But uh, his mistakes can be carefully engineered by his own surrounding because they are playing the king. And uh, uh, I'm 100% sure if they would decide to do so, uh, that uh, then uh, Putin's uh, uh, support would start to collapse uh, uh, pretty rapidly. And they would open the gates, uh, uh, so to say. None of them can uh, name a candidate, uh, which would be a popular you know, people's uh, candidate. They can name a figure which can uh, be the successor for, uh, for Putin. But most likely it would be figure like Dmitry Medvedev who would be weak and the kind of compromise between uh, uh, everybody. And that would give the possibility for a new leader uh, uh, to emerge. But again, I'm 100% sure that this leader would come uh, either from the left or, God forbid, from the nationalist part. Uh, uh, of the spectrum. So I would fight my best to, to, for this guy to be from the left. Uh, for, but nationalists also have, would, would, would have chance, but liberals, no. Thank you very much for this interesting discussion. My name is Tori Tausig, and I'm from the Brookings Institute. And Ilya, to follow up on your point earlier about um, the sources of instability most likely emerging from the top, I wanted to ask you more broadly about the, the idea of legitimacy in the Putin era. And first off, uh, what are the sources of legitimacy of this regime? And then from what groups or, or kind of elites at the top specifically does he seek to maintain legitimacy and, and stability with? And then how do we see the events of kind of the 2011, 2012 elections, kind of Crimea, and then these most recent elections as illustrating what that kind of legitimacy looks like and where it, where it emerges from. Thank you. I don't want to eat the bread of Henry, no, uh, but speaking on, in terms of uh, political uh, science, uh, the current regime can be uh, best described as Bonapartist regime, like Louis Bonaparte III in France. And the legitimacy of this kind of regimes uh, is coming from legitimacy of the leader. Uh, it's uh, this regime's strength, and this is uh, uh, the Achilles uh, uh, tendon of, the, of, of this regime. Um, uh, as long as Putin would be strong, uh, whatever is happening within the country, local elections, regional elections, federal elections, appointments, 
they all would be legitimate in, in people's eyes because they, they take them all as fraction uh, of uh, uh, Putin's uh, aura and Putin's, uh, 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 Putin's power. So um, uh, in this situation, it can last for a very long time. Uh, uh, during these elections, you know, I uh, know different Russian regions very well, but uh, uh, when I was exploring all the single mandates, candidates would actually won their majority districts during these elections, you know, probably 80% I don't know. Uh, because it do they don't matter. Uh, uh, you can uh, you can name dogs, cats, you know, horses. You know, they would be the same in the same degree uh, legitimate in, in people's eyes. That's why I was talking about Crimea and about the legitimacy, which is coming from in terms of uh, law and not on the, the terms of legitimacy as 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 people's legitimacy, uh, because really this is the first time when uh, there is a major. Uh, major violation of international law in the in the foundation of uh, this uh, uh, parliament, and uh, if uh, um, uh, if the West uh, would decide to dig in this direction, which I doubt, uh, uh, but if it will, that would result in major problems uh, uh, for Putin and and his power, because at the end of the day, Duma has been used not to. Uh, increase legitimacy of the regime in general, but to consolidate the elites by giving them a seat, by giving them status, by, by giving them recognition, you know, by giving them feeling that they are part of this consolidated power. So uh, Duma is a mechanism how uh, uh, to include regional elites uh, in the overall construction. And if they would see that this construction bears additional risks for them personally, then they, it would be seen not as a strength, but as a, as, as a weakness. And I, in general, again, returning to the issue of sanctions, that what I was saying for a very long time, that I think that economic sanctions, uh, the way they were introduced from the very beginning, they were a mistake because they helped to consolidate common people around Putin, because they helped Putin to explain that all their personal problems are associated with the West. But personal sanctions should have been way more severe and should be extended way further than they were originally introduced. And these elections are actually a very good chance to reconsider uh, this, this approach and, 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 and to think more about it. Yeah, maybe I'll just add a couple things. Um, I mean, I think legitimacy is a difficult question, you know, because there are different definitions. Um, I mean, to some extent, something becomes legitimate just because people expect it to continue. And I think that actually is a part of it. It's just the expectation that the current system is going to continue leads people to discount possible alternatives or just not take them seriously. Um, so it's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy in that way. Um, but I guess I would highlight a few things. I mean, one, I think you're right that the, um, you know, the, the, the potential for uh, opposition um, is not really so great on the right. Um, but partly I think that's because the, uh, the current uh, uh, authorities, Putin and United Russia, have sort of uh, co-opted that room for opposition. I mean, because they're associated in public opinion polls. If you ask people, um, you know, where on a 10-point scale um, of left to right, 
does the current system, you know, United Russia or Putin, lie? They place them on the right. And so they see them as sort of a market-oriented uh, alternative to the Yeltsin-era reformers who did all these bad things and destroyed the economy. Um, so there's not a whole lot of room. Um, and uh, that's, the Kremlin has been very careful to prevent um, kind of others from encroaching on that part of what United Russia goes for. Of course, it also goes for a wide range of, of public appeals and makes coalitions with left and right. Um, but I think, uh, you know, probably somewhere in that moderate, not the kind of extreme far right, far market oriented areas where it's going to be. But I think that also is part of its appeal is that um, it appeals to sort of a pragmatic, generally market oriented approach that um, a large number of people, uh, you know, can be made to accept. Um, I think also we find, uh, you know, I mean, the, the economy I already mentioned, I think the economic legitimacy is very important. The fact that the economy improved dramatically during the uh, 2000s, at least, you know, for a lot of people saw improvements in their lives, you know, across Russia, not just in St. Petersburg and Moscow. Um, and so that matters. And so that's one reason it's facing problems now is the, the slowing of the economy, of course. Um, there have been traditional um, certain demographic appeals that it's made, I mean, which we can talk about the sources of, which are always interesting. I mean, women tend to support the, uh, Putin in particular, uh, more united Russia, uh, more strongly than men. Uh, if you ask them in polls, they're uh, controlling for other things. They're more likely to vote for it. Um, smaller communities, uh, there are appeals to, more, to smaller communities as opposed to the urban areas, as we know. Um, and so I think there are a variety of, of bases upon which the regime gains support. And again, support isn't necessarily legitimacy. And again, you know, I, I think it's also all within the context of the regime shaping this perception of alternatives and kind of really creating the impression that, uh, you know, the al other alternatives are just not viable, whether or not you might like them in the uh, real world. Um, so I think that's you know, the possibility of change happens when something really shakes the expectations of people, when they start to think that something possible Something, something else might be possible. And I think that was one of the big, uh, powerful things that happened in, in 2011 with the protests was suddenly people started to think, well, wait a minute, you know, maybe we can have an alternative future. And so that just cr opened up the space for a lot of people to be thinking about real political change. And it was a real crisis for uh, this, the, the regime, uh, which then overcame it, I think. But um, I think it was a period of great uncertainty. Um, and so certainly a moment like that could arise in the, in the future. Um, so, you know, legitimacy can be kind of a fragile thing as well because so much of it hinges on what people expect to happen and, uh, and what people expect to happen can be impacted by a lot of very circumstantial factors. Governments are legitimate until they're not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm Kate Bothman. I'm a graduate student over at Georgetown at Ceres. Um, and I was kind of surprised uh, by the fact that this year foreign, well, nationals, Russian nationals abroad were allowed to, to vote. Um, and you had mentioned that this was having to do with the, the large brain drain. Um, and I was wondering, A, sort of, uh, I got the impression that maybe uh, it wouldn't be the case that the um, sort of uh, support and proportional support for the various parties was the same among uh, these Russian nationals abroad. And if not, um, if perhaps alternative parties uh, to United Russia uh, receive more support among this particular sector, why would they decide to institute this new policy where people abroad could vote? Um, 
No, um, it's a, it's not a new policy. Uh, actually, uh, uh, Russians abroad could always vote. Uh, it's just that their number has in, increased dramatically. Because previous waves of immigration, they were people were living for good and they were changing their citizenship. Right now, they are living, but they retain Russian passports. So they want just to stay outside Russia, but the, uh, uh, they are still Russian citizen. And uh, uh, the only important thing that changed is that, again, previously the overall number was so small that all Russian nationals in all countries, they were usually linked to one particular electoral district in, in Russia, the one which is more deficient in terms of uh, uh, number of votes, you know, to balance the number of voters in, in, in every district. Right now, almost every single different consulate office in different countries is linked to a different electoral district because these numbers can seriously change uh, uh, the result of the elections. For example, if, uh, you know, whatever opposition candidate we would be uh, putting, if everybody would be uh, all uh, overseas uh, uh, stations would be linked to one district, this guy would, would, guaranteed, uh, would be guaranteed in, in, in the Duma. Uh, and uh, even uh, with uh, Gutkov, we thought that number of votes in the United States alone, and not all of the United States, United States uh, had, uh, um, I believe, 13 or 14 uh, uh, polling stations. For Gutkov, it was just four, but we thought it would be already enough uh, uh, to, get him, uh, to get him in the Duma. Uh, they even last, made some last moment changes uh, in the embassy, because originally New York was supposed to be voting for Gutkov, and that's one of the largest Russian audiences, so they decided to cut uh, New York out uh, and give other uh, districts so to, <laughs> to, to decrease uh, support for Gutkov. But it's a totally new phenomenon that people were campaigning. Uh, and uh, uh, in, in terms of uh, preferences, uh, I don't have yet the official results. But in the United States, uh, it's, uh, I'm 100% certain that Yablaka was number one. Um, uh, I know that, uh, for example, in Washington, D.C., Yablaka was number one and Gutkov was number one. Uh, 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 and uh, my observation in Boston was exactly the same, and I guess that in most other places uh, uh, it would be the same. European uh, Russians, they uh, uh, most likely uh, voted differently because they had uh, strong organizations which are linking them to uh, um, uh, the current uh, authorities in, in Russia. And most likely their vote was uh, at least split uh, for and against uh, United Russia. But in the United States, the support was predominantly for the opposition. Okay, this is probably about a, a good spot to end on then. So any concluding thoughts, any surprises ahead for the Duma that's now going to be seated? Or are we now just have a, a clear path to 2018? Uh, as I said, I don't think that we have clear path. I think that this road would be pretty bumpy. Uh, uh, and there are a lot of uncertainties. There are things which can be done uh, to influence the uh, situation. I don't have high hopes, 
that uh, uh, it would be a consistent uh, policies on behalf of uh, Western nations, unfortunately. Uh, but there is a strong possibility to, to achieve things and to influence uh, uh, the situation in Russia. Um, uh, of course, it's all up to us Russians. And uh, there are people who are position-minded. And there are a lot of them. Right now, they, don't feel, they, they feel abandoned and they feel orphaned. And they don't feel that there is any kind of force that can consolidate them. And that's why they are not coming for the elections. People don't want to be lone fighters. They want to be part of a certain force. And right now, there is only one force in Russia, which is Vladimir Putin. And uh, here, I think that Russian diaspora would play uh, a significant role. It can uh, influence to construct this force. But we also need your support in terms of uh, uh, forming the public opinion and to abandon the idea of supporting the old timers of 90s, despite that they uh, may speak better English, you know, than uh, some uh, uh, new generation guys, uh, you know, especially from the left or nationalist flanks, which uh, which may be coming. Uh, they may be more pleasant. Uh, more accustomed with better connections here in DC, but at the end of the day, I think it's our common interest to have the situation in Russia changed. And it's in the interest of uh, global security, it's in the interest of European security, and of course it's in the, it's in the interest of common Russians. Yeah, maybe just a couple, I think. Just, uh, I mean, probably uh, this Duma is not gonna act a whole lot differently from the other one. Um, the previous one that's just uh, moving out of office. Although it w I think it will be interesting to see if the district deputies start behaving differently somehow, um, you know, to see if they actually do represent a tighter link to their uh, constituencies than did the, the representatives uh, on average of the previous Duma. Um, I, I don't expect a major difference there just because I think the, the Duma has its place in the system um, and I don't think this changes it. If anything, this just kind of reinforces the uh, administration's control over the Duma. Um, and I think the main kind of thing is coming next. I mean, I, I think the presidential campaign effectively begins now. I mean, people have been thinking about it uh, before now, but uh, I think now um, you know, is when you're going to start seeing uh, you know, a lot of direct uh, actions uh, aimed at influencing the 2018 elections. And probably the first element of intrigue will just be, uh, will the administration decide to capitalize on this relative success uh, to uh, move up the uh, time of the election. So now it's scheduled for uh, March of 2018, um, but it's possible they might want to not take a chance on the economy getting any worse, um, and, uh, or at least getting much worse, and go ahead and move things up and, and uh, you know, shift on to the, the next stage. Um, of course, that only brings the, the, the next election even uh, closer, so I'm not sure that, that would be a good move from their perspective, but at least now I think there, there is a lot of uh, um, uncertainty as to whether or not something like this might happen. So as far as things to look for, that's what I'll be interested to see, I think, kind of most immediately. But uh, thank you. Okay, thanks again to our panelists, and thanks again to all of you for coming out here. You can see the, the difficulties at generating turnout uh, here in this room, but so congratulate yourselves for making it. And it's the same 40%, you know. Yeah. <laughs>